Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the evening service of Sunday the 10th of April 2011, entitled Jesus the Soul Winner Part 2, and the Bible reading is taken from John chapter 4 verses 1 to 26. Here's Brother Chris Mansfield. John chapter 4. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized none but his disciples, he left Judah and departed again into Galilee. And his must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weary from his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, ask drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me a drink, thou wouldst have asked him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then how thou that living water? Thou art thou greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and drink thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinketh of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come hither to draw water. Jesus said unto her, Go, call your husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast said, Well, I have no husband, for thou art five husbands, and he who has now not thy husband is um, saideth thou truly. The woman um, said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Mm-hmm. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither wor- worship in this mountain, or in Jerusalem, but worship the Father. Um, ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seek such to worship him. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman say unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, when he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus say unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Um, this is part two, as most of you know, apart from Jill, maybe. So we'll just do a little quick recap of what we did this morning. Um, we're going through this, the story of the, um, the woman at the well when Jesus came um, to Samaria. He came the most direct route to get to Samaria, but it wasn't the route that the Jews normally take. They would go roundabout way to miss going through Samaria. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They um, despised them. They thought them as half-breeds. Jews would not speak to Samaritans 
Um, this lady was coming at an hour of the day was unusual. We've said this morning that it was at the evening. Water was normally collected at the morning. This lady was coming at the evening because of her, her shame of her sin. She was coming to avoid people. Um, the Lord, though, is must needs go to Samaria. So the Lord knew that she was going to be there. He knew that he was going to have this divine appointment with her. And he made, a, if you like, a direct route to this well. The well is the well of um, Jacob that Jacob was uh, um, given to his family. He used to use the well to feed his livestock. And um, we've gone through this morning different uh, areas of air like the, the woman thought that um, she could get away with a few things and how Jesus recited to her her past. And uh, she said that she didn't have a husband. And we mentioned there that in today's standards, that might be correct. But in God's standard, um, you know, if you're not married, then she's not your husband. You're living in sin. And we talked about all that. So um, if we can go, I know that I've spoke about this just, but if we go back to verse um, 417, just to go over what we've did, um, it'll tie in better. Um, we asked the question, why does Jesus in verse 17 abruptly change the subject when the lady's been asking, I want this living water. I want this water that's going to well up inside of me. And Jesus changes the subject abruptly and says, go call your husband. And we were mentioning this morning that um, why, why is that? Why is Jesus so abruptly changed the subject? And we um, said that the reason that the Lord changed the subject so um, sharply was the fact that this lady wanted the blessings of God. We said that the blessings, this living water was the gift of salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit that will go on to eternal life. And there's no way that you can receive the gift of salvation without being confronted with your sin. So the Lord now is turning the attention to sin in this lady's life. And he says, go call your husband. Um, and we said that the lady had, you know, she was not talk, frightened to talk about theology and she was not talk, frightened to talk and to act a little shocked. But, um, you know, we need to be cunning as uh, trying to reach these people. You know, we shouldn't be worldly, but should we, we should know what's going on to reach these people. Um, although she was maybe able to fool her fellow man when she said, I have no husband, obviously the Lord, he's God, isn't he? And he's all knowing. He knew that this question that was putting was going to provoke the conversation that was going to bring up the sin problem. In verse 18, it says there, for thou um, have said, well, thou have high um, husbands, and him who is now thy husband is not thy husband. Um, so Jesus um, says that, you know, you've, you've answered right, but he's not your husband. And we said this morning that um, maybe for some miraculous, tragic way that the first five husbands were killed or, you know, there was a genuine reason. I doubt it personally, but, you know, but the problem isn't the five husbands. It's the fact that she's living with this man and it's not a husband. And Jesus is confronting that sin. It doesn't really matter what's gone on there. We don't know. But she's trying to cover a sin up with another lie there. So because Jesus has revealed to her her past without her sharing the past, this is where we got to this morning in verse 19. She says now in this verse, in verse 19, thou art a prophet. And 
In the next verse, verse 20, the subject change is from sin to worship. So we're going to go into that now. It seems that the woman had been convicted of her sin, and now she changes the subject sharply away from sin and introduces her question to do with the proper price of worship. So just as the Lord was trying to bring her to a place to confront her with her sin, she also tries to change the subject and says, starts to talk about worship. But as we all see, this even more adds to the way in which the Lord is going to bring this lady to an understanding of her sin. Not to shame her, not to screw her into the ground and condemn her, but to save her soul, because that's what the Lord wanted to do. Jesus um, did not avoid the question in verse 21, um, but he imparted more spiritual truth. If you remember, we were saying this morning that the lady at the well, she could only see physical. She could only, she, when she says, I want, you know, I, don't, I want to come to the well and not thirst again, she maybe thought that Jesus was going to have some men carry the water for her, or, you know, like I said this morning about having a pipe run or something. She was only looking physically, and she was referring to um, Jacob and all these physical things. And the Lord was trying to reach her spiritually with the, um, the spiritual things that he was saying. So this goes on with the flavor, if you like, of what the Lord was trying to teach her to do with um, imparting more spiritual understanding. We said this morning that the lost, and we were lost, and we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we couldn't see. And that is the position where the lost are. They can't see these spiritual things. It doesn't matter if you're a guru. It doesn't matter if you're a so-called new age into whatever. You are spiritually dead until you come to Christ. And your spirit's not regenerated and made born again until you come to that place. You might call yourself spiritual, but you're not, and you're dead. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. And this lady was dead and she couldn't see it. So Jesus wants to impart more spiritual truth to her. And he told her that there was a coming a day and a time was coming when neither on Mount Gerizim, which we said this morning was the Samaritan place of worship, and they said there was even division and argument over where they were supposed to worship. We mentioned that this morning. Nor in Jerusalem, which was the, the place to worship. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was appointed by God as a city where worship should be offered to him. We know that. The temple was the dwelling place of God, and devout Jews came to Jerusalem with their sacrifices and their offerings. In the church age, or the gospel age, this is no longer true. So we, did not, we don't need to go to a temple. We don't need to offer sacrifices. We can read in Hebrews that he was offered once for all, and that we can enter boldly. And we're going to come to that in a minute. But at this time, when Jesus was there talking to this lady, even though the the, um, the sacrificial system was corrupt and the Jewish people had corrupted it, it was still God's place that was the place of worship. And we read in the New Testament where um, James, the brother of Jesus, he was the first sort of pastor of Jerusalem. They didn't flee and leave it. They, you know, we read that Paul went and he preached in the synagogues, and even Jesus went to the synagogue. So apart from it still being corrupt and still being a problem, it was at this point still God's place for offer sacrifices for sin. 
There was no other place to go. If you want to appease your sin or cover your sin, you went to Jerusalem. If you wanted to thank him and give him a thank offering, you would go and give the offering there to the priests. So, as we said, this is no longer true in the church age. Um, God has no particular place on earth where men must go to worship him. The Lord Jesus now is going um, in the next verse to explain more, and that's in um, verse 22. The first part there, it says, You worship ye know not what. Now this is the reference to the Samaritan way of worshipping. The first part, if you look at it, it's, all, it's always the Samaritan and Jerusalem. So Jesus is addressing ye, ye worship ye know not what, refers and condemns, if you like, the Samaritan mode of worship. They um, had made their own religion, for want of a better word. They'd broke away from true, um, the true Israelites. They were half-breeds, as we said this morning. Um, might have been some very nice people, but um, they were not, if you like, right in their religious practices at that point. So Jesus uh, he's saying, you, you don't even know what you're worshipping. Um, he condemned the Samaritan mode of worship. So many teach today, don't they, that all religion is good um, and that it will all end up in heaven, will all end up some way in heaven through religious practices. And as an ex-Catholic, um, there's something about religion that holds you bond captive to more religion and more religion and more religion and the emphasis is on you it's not on him you go to a priest for ask for forgiveness you you know do your holy communion whatever you do the emphasis is on you appeasing your sin and man there's something in man that just wants to do that there's something that in man that wants to be as we know religious and um all religion does not end up in heaven. It doesn't profit a man to be religious in any way, shape, or form. Um, as we said this morning, that the Jews had rejected their Messiah. They were, you could say, one of the most religious people. Yet the other story about the Samaritan, he was the only one that helped the, the man that was, you know, he was the only one that was acting like a good religious man. The high priest come past, he wouldn't touch him because he was unclean and all these different things. Yet the, the Samaritans had got that bit right, if you like, when they helped the man that was caught in the, you know, with the thieves. But um, the Lord informed here that the worship of the Samaritan wasn't authorised by God. And any religion, if it's not founded in the word of God, pointless, absolute waste of time, only thing it does is make you feel good. As a ex, you know, as a young boy, I can remember, um, you know, going to church and and then maybe when I was a bit of a teenager, going to church and it kind of just kept you going to the next time and then the ne and it was just like I'll do that and now I can do what I want, or at least I've still got my foot a bit in God's favour, but now I can live the rest of my life how I want. And um, it's it's too much like New Year's Eve resolutions and. You know, I'm going to diet on the twenty on the first of January, and all these—it's so religion of man, and all these things that we say we're going to do things, but religion just holds people bound, captive to the to the, the things that hold them, and God wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, and so God doesn't appoint this mode of worship to the Samaritans, 
Neither did Jesus here. He says, you don't even know what you're worshipping. You, you don't know. So Jesus himself condemned this worship. It had been invented by man and it had been carried on without the word of God instructing it so. All religion and worship of God outside the biblical instruction is wrong. Man-made religion and, and man-made worship is absolutely worse, worthless. One of the things that wind me up the most are these choirs that sing all about God's praises and, you know, this, um, it's kind of like gospel music, yet none of them are saved, and it just winds me up that these people are all singing these praises to God, and it's all about the music, and it's all about synchronising and different parts, yet it's not worshipping God one bit. The words might be exactly the same words that we sing, but it's just lip service. It's not coming from the heart. And, you know, it just if I hear that kind of music, it just, just grates at me that these unsafe people are praising God, yet they've gotten, they don't even, it's just lip service. And I'm, I've done it myself as a Catholic, and there's so many people that they like just the singing. I only come to church. The man next door to me, I mean, he, um, he's in the choir, a nice man. He just doesn't want to know. He just wants to sing, you know, that's it. He doesn't want to know anything about God. He just sit through the service and then sing and do his choir stuff and that's the way it is. So unless your heart's right, worship, religion, pointless. Man-made religion and worship is worthless. The only thing it does is make um, man feel good about himself. And we know that the Bible doesn't say we should feel good about ourselves. We should deny self take up our cross, follow him. I'm not saying that we should be dragging our knuckles around and, you know, we've got the joy of the Lord, haven't we? We've got, you know, we can rejoice in that blessed hope, but only God knows our heart. He knows that it's deceitfully wicked above all things, doesn't he? You know, so we need to be careful um, about man-made religion. In Colossians 2.18, it mentions there about being beguiled of your reward and on the unbiblical worship of angels and the human mind being vainly puffed up in religion. And that's all religion does is vainly puff man up. That's all it does. God does not hear the praises of the lost. He just can't sin. He's blocking the connection with God you can be singing, oh, guide me, oh, that great Jehovah. You can be singing whatever. But if you are not saved, you might as well be singing the latest pop song because sin blocks the connection with God. You cannot offer worship to God. You cannot serve God because of the sin. And this is what we're getting at with the Samaritan. Jesus is in the midst of revealing to this lady her sin and the problem that she's got. And she's changed the subject, and the Lord says, okay, well, if you want to go down the way of worship, we'll go down that path, but it's going to result in you learning more about the problem of sin. So the worship on the Jews, on the other hand, was different. God had set the Jewish people apart. He had chosen them as his earthly people. He had said to them, first, you're the light of the world. Some Christians can't get their head around that at all, but the Jewish people were the first people that he said to them, you are the light of the world. But now we are that light. And um, they were supposed to be different and stand out, but not stand out from, for religious practices, but stand out because God was their God. 
There's nothing special about the Jewish people, but there's something very special about the God of the Jewish people. And he's our God. And we thank him that we're, you know, I'm an adopted son. And um, unless you've got any Jewish descent in you, you're adopted. And praise God for our adoption. And we're joint heirs with him. But we're talking about the, the Jewish mode of worship here. Um, he was, they were God's earthly people. He had given them complete instructions on the way to worship him. We can read that through the beginning of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Um, everything was, even what spices to make, what ladle to ladle the watering, everything was given to the Jewish people exactly how to worship him. Um, they were given the true instructions from God how he wanted them to approach him. When Jesus said in this verse, salvation is of the Jews, he was teaching that the Jewish people were appointed by God to be his messengers and his mouthpiece. It was them that was given the Old Testament. The majority, if not all of the New Testament, is written by Jewish, Jewish writers. Um, they were given this tremendous privilege that the Messiah was going to be born from that nation. God chose them. That's just the way it is. He could have chose the Chinese people, but he chose them because they're small. He wanted, like Peter said, numbers don't matter. If the numbers are small, God gets the glory. Praise God for that. And that's why he chose Israel, because they were small in number, and he wanted to be their God. He wanted to shine his glories through that group of people. And salvation is of the Jews in the context of the Messiah would be born through them. It doesn't mean that just because you're a Jew, you're saved, or any other kind of like contortion that you want to put on that. It's just saying that the Jewish people, if you like, were God's chosen people, and there was going to be a chosen lady that was going to give birth to the God-man, Jesus Christ. And in verse 23, Jesus now speaks to the woman about his coming. God no longer had a certain place on earth to worship him. So we're never going to what's going to happen when Christ comes. We know that there was a big earthquake in the temple and the veil was ripped from the top to the bottom. You can imagine them just being ready to offer the sacrifice and the whole building is shaking and falling apart. The veil, which is, I've been told, about 18 inches thick, a foot thick, was ripped from top to bottom, and they must be thinking, what's going on? Jesus, if you like, through his death and resurrection, made that mode of worship null and void. Because as we've said in Hebrews, it says he came once for all and offered himself as that once and for all sacrifice for the remission of our sin. Um, so Jesus is saying there's coming a time when there'll be no earthly place to worship him like there was Jerusalem. Those who believe and are born again can worship God at any time and at any place. True worship means that a believer enters the presence of God by faith in Christ and praises and worships God there. We've heard Steve's stories of waking up in the night and praising God and, you know, I've seen praises to God in my van and, you know, you can anywhere you want to be, if you want to sing to God, you can praise his name. If you want to pray to him, you know, you can just shut the door wherever you are or go to the corner somewhere and 
or just carry on with your job. If it's, you're doing the same job and you know your job, you can pray to God while you're doing your job and you can enter into this place of true worship, of being in that place where God wants you to be. But it's, it's through your spirit, through that connection with God, through being born again through in faith. Um, like I said, you, the body might be at home, um, work, school, on the mission field, even in prison, but your spirit can draw near to God in a heavenly sanctuary by faith. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Because of Christ entering with his blood and cleansing that temple in the heavenlies, we can come boldly now after he has been and cleansed it for us. We can approach God boldly. But it's unbelievable what we can. We can come boldly if we're living right, if we're walking right, if we're trying our best, we can enter boldly into the, the throne room. And we mentioned there, even in prison, and the famous story in Acts 16, 24 and 25, when Paul and Silas are in prison, if you remember, they're preaching the gospel and they've told them, you ain't going to preach it no more. Throw them in prison and they're there chained, aren't they, to the wall and they're praising God within the prison gates. And then, remember, they, they come out and the, the prisoner, you know, he wants to get saved and um, God does a wonderful work there. But they praised God within the midst of prison, chained to a wall. It might be rats eating their feet or, you know, horrible conditions. Yet, through that connection with God, through being born again, they could worship God in spirit and in truth, even in prison. And there's other stories of other testimonies of people, not crazy testimonies, not God coming down and all that junk that you can read in so many of the Christian books, but true biblical and true godly men that drew near to God in severe places, severe conditions, and they, through their spirit, were still able to approach God and praise him, even though everything around them was falling apart. Jesus announces to the woman that the form of worship now the Lord wants or wills is spirit and in truth. And we can't emphasize the truth enough. Um, you know, be careful what you sing. Some of the old hymns are just as bad as the new ones. They mention, you know, lots of things that um, are not biblical. So just be careful what you sing with the words, but also be careful what your heart's like. We can't just think we can live like a devil and then come and praise God. You can't, it's just, be careful. You know, you just can't be like that. We can be like that if you want, but you, it's just going to not you're not going to benefit yourself or benefit anyone else and things are going to be hindered um, if our heart condition is not right. God, Jesus, is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's perfect in his ways. So they that worship him worship in spirit and in truth. There must be no sham or hypocrisy. There must be um, no pretense in our religion um, when our inward life is corrupt. Um, the idea that God is pleased with us going through these rituals, even if those rituals and methods are biblical modes of worship, it's still pointless if your heart isn't right. We should come with our approach to God with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That doesn't mean with a sad countenance or a... It's just your heart condition 
knowing that God has spanned that that great gulf between mankind and salvation. He has bridged that gap. Our hearts are so wicked, yet he wants us to sing to him. He wants us to praise him. He wants to hear those praises and it should stir our hearts and it should make us live godly. Right, in verse 25, maybe as she listened to Jesus, the woman had been made to think of the coming Messiah. If she said, um, just before that, she said, I can see that you're a prophet. Um, but now she's changed her, the way in which she's speaking to Jesus. In verse 25, the woman saith unto him, I knoweth that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. In fact, the word Messiah and Christ are one and the same expression. Messiah is the Hebrew word for God's anointed one, and Christ is the Greek equivalent. They mean exactly the same. So she is saying, if you like, um, she's expressing that Christ is going to come in two different modes in the way that she's speaking. She's saying Messiah and Christ. Um, and in verse 26, um, verse, it says that when he comes, Jesus, speaking literally, so in, in verse 25, it mentions the two names for the Messiah. We've got the Hebrew equivalent and the Greek equivalent. And in verse 20, 26, Jesus now is bringing in another name for God. So the Samaritan uses two names for the Lord, and now Jesus is going to impart some more spiritual truth for another name of himself. Um, Jesus, when he says, I that speak unto thee am he, he's obviously speaking about himself. But if we were to be able to read this in the Hebrew or Greek, all the letters and the wo- all the words would be there, but they would be in a different order because the way that the the, the way in which we speak and the um, different people speak of parts of different parts of the world. So we have got the I at the beginning of the sentence and the am just there. But if we was to read that in the Hebrew or Greek, the I and the am would be directly connected to, together. It wouldn't be separated at the end and the beginning of the verse. So Jesus is saying to her, I am the I am who's speaking to you. Now, straight away, we all know where we should go, Exodus, when God said to Moses, God was frightened, who am I going to send? And he had that conversation with God. And God said, the I am will be with you. I will send you in my name. That's my name, the I am. So the Samaritan woman uses Christ and the Messiah. Now, Jesus is saying, I am fully God. I am the I am, the Jehovah of the Old Testament. That's me. So Jesus is now importing more um, spiritual truth. In the Greek, it would read, I that speak unto thee am. So we'd miss the I out because it's just, it's emphasizing the am part. In the Hebrew, it would be I am. Um, There's a deep significance to the words of the Lord here. As we've said, he's using the I am, the description of God. He uses the names of God to apply it to himself in the Old Testament. And as we said, that's in Exodus 3, 13 and 14 
where he's talking to Moses and uh, God says, I am, I will prove to be or I'll prove to be, I am who I am. Um, he said, I am, he's speaking to you. In other words, Jehovah is the one who is speaking to the Samaritan woman. Jesus was announcing to her that the one speaking was the Messiah. He was the Mashiach. He was the anointed one. He was the great I am. He was the one she was looking at. The Jehovah of the Old Testament is the saviour of the New Testament. So now we break slightly and we go back to the disciples. When the disciples returned from Sikar, remember they'd gone to buy food. That was the reason that Jesus hadn't got any way of drawing any water out of the well because they maybe have took the pots with them to bring the water and the, uh, the food back. Um, when they came back after buying the food, because they were Jews, they were surprised that Jesus, a Jew, was talking to a Samaritan woman, which reinforces what we were saying at the beginning. Um, but they didn't mention anything to the Lord. They kept it to themselves, it says. And, you know, we've said that Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. And in that verse there, 27, it says, but they, they kept it to themselves. They didn't tell anyone. The next important thing that is there is verse 28. The woman then left her water pot and went away into the city and said to the man, to the men. So we're just going to look at what's going on here. Jesus has, she's mentioned Messiah. She's mentioned the Christ. Jesus has mentioned I am. She's now in a position where she's accepting the Lord. She's understanding. She's now seen spiritually. In verse 28, the woman left her water pot and went away into the city. Leaving her water pot symbolizes the various things in life that she'd used to satisfy herself, her deepest desires, which had failed her in the past. Now she had found the Lord, these things um, that had been so prominent in her life were left behind. Also, the pots in those days were known as earthen vessels. Earthen means earthy, probably made from clay. Um, the worship and service and discipleship of Christ has no place for anything earthy or fleshly. The woman leaving these pots behind was a sign of her leaving fleshly things, leaving thoughts of all the while Jesus was speaking to her, she could only see physical things, fleshly things. Now the pots have been left and she's gone back to the city. It symbolizes how the flesh cannot be a part of any of our service, worship, or discipleship. If you remember, we are made from the dust of the earth. Adam and Eve were made from the clay of the ground. Our flesh must die daily for our Lord. And that's what we should do. When we first thing we should do is praise his name and try and do our best to live according to the scriptures. As I was thinking about these things, um, a scripture came into my mind, Judges 7. If you want to turn there, you'll know the scripture when you see it. This is Gideon's battle with the Midianites. If you remember, Gideon was with a hundred men, camped outside the Midian city, 
and they'd got pots with lights in and they were coming to ambush the city at night and the Lord instructed the, um, the trumpet blowers to blow their trumpets at a set time and at that point they smashed the earthen vessels the lights would come out and they would take the city and it says there the sword of the Lord and for Gideon this speaks to me and to speak to us about the flesh must be broken for the light of God to shine out we can't we've said that we are the light of the world but our flesh can smother that light it doesn't need to be you know we Jesus says about hiding your light under a bushel we just can't do that and here the moving vessels are smashed and the light is let out and then they do God's work the battle is the Lord's the sword of the Lord our sword is the word of God isn't it so this symbolizes to me that you know the flesh must die and we're talking about the lady leaving her pot behind which was made of clay and she's just left that there symbolizing to us that the flesh has not got no part in God's economy um, when we say we stop thinking of our needs and we start thinking of others the lady she'd left her water pot and straight away thought about the people in the city the people that she'd been avoiding the life of shame that she'd left but all just left her mind and she was just enthusiastically running back to the city to tell the people about this man you might say that as zeal for the lost she forgot her water pot so we get now to her witness this is in John 4 29 and 30 the woman starting verse 28 the woman left her water pot and went away into the city and said to the men come see a man which told me all things that I ever did is not this the Christ then they went out of the city and came unto him so her witness of the Lord provoked a desire for the people within the village to come and find this man and it was because of her transformation through salvation she was a lady of shame we have said she came to avoid people now she's standing there boldly not shamefully proclaiming to these people that she's met this man who she says is the Christ come and see him he's told me all things that I ever did she's a changed person she's a changed lady because of Jesus the master soul winner has drew her to a place where she understands about her sin and she freely wants to leave that life of sin and walk according to God's way now she'd got to pick a water bottle she'd got to go back to the well she'd got to drink you know not all earthly things are wrong but it's our emphasis on what they are and how we use them so you know she got to at some point come back and get that water pot and fill it up and get some water but at the point where we're looking at in scripture she left that fleshly vessel and ran back to the city to proclaim the gospel to these men you might say she left the physical water and ran with the spiritual water of God back to this city the water that can well up and bring about a blessing she went there she invited the townspeople to come and see a man who told her all things that she ever did 
there arose within her heart the possibility that this man might be the Messiah. He declared to her that he was the I am, and she wanted others to be changed by Jesus. She raised a question in her mind that they were, that, um, to, you know, to go and meet this man. Doubtless this woman was well known in her village because of her sin and her shame. The people might have been shocked to see her standing in this public place, bearing witness of the Lord. All self-centered thoughts about people, what, what people think of me and all these kind of thoughts were gone. She cared more about others than she did herself. This is the work of Christ in her heart. She was just a little baby Christian, yet she was displaying some great godly attributes right away. And I remember when the day after I got saved, I borrowed a pencil off somebody in this work, and I said, can I borrow your pencil? And he says, yeah. And that pencil, I've got to give it back or it's stealing. You know, it's just crazy. But it was like, it was like if it was made of gold, you know what I mean? And the emphasis on that pencil, and that was my first fruits of my salvation, don't keep it, it's stealing. I'd not read the Bible. I'd, not, I'd just got saved the night before. And I knew that I couldn't have that pencil. And that's, that's what God does in your heart. He just starts to put them principles down. And this is what he did with this lady. She'd stopped thinking about herself and thought of others. Um, she wanted the people to see the Christ. Her testimony was so effective that these people just went up from the village and left and went, in, went to meet Christ. How was your life changed? Today, yesterday, last week, just like this lady's life had changed. You know, and David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. You know, we should be asking God to be walking in the joy of our salvation every day. The people left their village and their homes to find Jesus. Now, if we read John 39 and 42, this is what happened after um, that Jesus had they'd come to see Jesus. Many of the Samaritans of the city believed on him for the signs of the woman which testified, he told me all things I ever did. So the Samaritans came unto him, they besought him that they would tarry with them and abode with them two days, and many more believed because of one word, of, of his own word, sorry. So the testimony of this woman was great. She went to this city the testimony of a changed heart was the biggest witness. It wasn't necessarily the words, this man has told me all things that I ever knew. It was the fact that she was a completely different person and she was transformed from a woman of shame to a messenger of the gospel. And that's the witness, that was the witness, and that's our challenge. It's not necessarily, even though we need to know this book, believe me, there's any time that the church and individuals need to know this book it's now but the book should have an effect on the way that we are and the way that we live and the way that we speak and the way that we talk to one another and we've got to be honest with ourselves we've got we've still got a long way to go and we've still got a long way to go with our witness but it's a day-to-day -day thing it's a take up your cross daily deny self take up your cross follow me and your testimony is powerful, just like this lady's testimony is powerful. Your testimony is also powerful. Reading Revelation that they overcame because of the, the word of their testimony. Your testimony is powerful because 
you remember it before you were too religious, before you knew the, the words like sanctification and the big words and the, the words that confuse people. Now, these words are, you know, very important and are within the scriptures and within, you know, you know parts of God's plan. But your testimony, you were saved before you knew all these words, but you can still relate some of these truths to the lost because you wasn't too religious. You wasn't too churched, if you like. You're powerful because of your testimony, not of what God, not of what you've done, not how you have come, but how, what Christ has done for you. So don't be ever shameful of your testimony. It might be the, you might think, the weakest testimony, but it's not. It's, Christ's salvation is not weak in any form, any way, any shape. You know, you hear some wonderful testimonies, big book, you know, of this man's testimony, and it's a bestseller maybe, but it doesn't take away from your testimony. Your testimony, there's, there's, you know, there's millions of people just like me, just like you, and we came to Christ before we were churched and religious and got all these big words. So the challenge is to go with our testimony and talk to the people that we're around in our village. But don't take your water pot. Don't take that flesh. That flesh will rise up. It will. We've learned from the teachings of the Lord that he never really shamed people because of their sin unless it was absolutely necessary. Our flesh just wants to win an argument. Our flesh just wants to be right. But no, they should be the ones winning the argument. We should step back and let them come to Christ and let them have their say. It shouldn't shake us in any way. It shouldn't, you know, think that the foundation is crumbling. We're saved. They're, if anything that they say is attacking God's word, it's not attacking us. It's not personal, even though it does feel personal. It's this that they're attacking. If we start going into the word way of the flesh... It will attack you, but there'll be no reward for you at all. There'll be no reward for... It says that you'll get your reward from man. But the word of God, we want our reward from him. So the challenge tonight is to go with your testimony to the place where you are and try and speak to people about the Lord Jesus Christ. God has made divine appointments for you to keep. You know, maybe go to work a different way. If you walk to work, you know, not many people walk to work. Maybe, you know, take the dog a different walk. You might bump into someone that you don't normally see. You know, don't just be, um, be sensitive to God and what, where he might put you or what he might do with your heart, with the way that you are. Or, you know, if we are truly seeking to want people to come to him and earnestly seeking, we could do, our, do a lot better than what we're doing. Couldn't we? we could definitely, you know... I know when I first got saved, I was so um, enthusiastic about talking about the Bible and Jesus. And I made a mess of it, I've got to admit. I said things that were just man-made and not biblical and what I thought was true, and now I've learned that they're not. But the enthusiasm was there. And, you know, the enthusiasm of the lost coming in can infuse us that have lost our first love a little bit. We need to get those lost people in to encourage us, you know, to help us walk that walk because their enthusiasm, we can just channel that in the right direction and it's going to bless us. It's going to bless the pastor. It's going to bless the church. But most of all, 
God wants them saved. God wants them sanctified. God wants them discipled. So take your testimony. Don't be ashamed. It might be them. You might think the most boring testimony. I went to church and I got saved. No, that's what happened to me. But it ain't a boring testimony because it was the point where you were not religious. You hadn't got those big words. And believe me, I think so many words are being left out of the English dictionary every year. And words like, I've got no idea, but, you know, words that are just junk are being replaced. You know, the society is just falling apart. So some of these old King James words that we, you know, sometimes use are good, but people just don't understand them. We need to, the word of God won't return void, but we need to know how to explain these things. But your testimony is powerful because you, you just, you didn't know all these words. You didn't know religion. You didn't know anything. All you knew was a man who changed your heart. And that's what these people need. So we just have a word of prayer and then. Lord, we pray that you would be with us, Lord. We confess, Lord, that we're not walking as we should. Lord, we confess that we are not studying your word as we should. Lord, as we look around, we know that the times are coming, Lord, when things are going to be even worse, Lord. And Lord, we do want to stand in power and in truth in you. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us with our individual walk. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us with our personal evangelism. Lord, we know, Lord, that we're not all called to be evangelists. As the pastor has said, you know, we've all got different gifts, but we are all called to give an account of the hope of glory within. We're all called to give that um, explanation of why we are changed. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that even this week, even before Wednesday, Lord, that you would give us an opportunity to speak about our testimony to others. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to leave the flesh behind, just as the lady at the well left that water pot, symbolizing the flesh being left there. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to take this living water with us wherever we go. Lord, that your um, salvation, Lord, would be spread abroad and, Lord, that we would be faithful in our witness. But, Lord, not that it'd be about numbers, not that it would be, you know, to fill this church, but that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name.